welcome to the BCMA podcast. I'm your host, Lorenda Calvert. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Valerie and Cornelia for joining us. We're so excited to have you here on the podcast. I thought, uh, what better idea than to start with introductions. I've uh, had the pleasure of getting to know you, but I'd love for our listeners to get to know you a little bit further. Valerie, do you want to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Um, my name is Valerie Marlowe. I am the Assistant Director for Archives and Collections at the University of Delaware's Disaster Research Center uh, in the United States. And um, I am uh, so glad to be here to talk about cultural institutions and disasters. Thank you so much for joining us. Cornelia, would you like to take it away? Sure. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Cornelia Posh. I'm a third year PhD student in the Disaster Science and Management program at the University of Delaware. And I'm also a graduate research assistant in the uh, collection at the Disaster Research Center where I work with Valerie. Um, I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much. Now for our listeners, um, I had the pleasure of meeting Valerie and Cornelia thanks to Twitter, um, the power of social media. I saw an, an incredible um, Twitter thread that led me to uh, explore a little bit figure, further and reach out to chat about uh, what we're chatting about today. Um, so, you know, the miracle, the miracle of modern technology. Um, now, Cornelia and, and Valerie, just to put you on the spot, just as a little, you know, fun fact, get to know uh, me question. Do you have a favorite Museum, gallery, library, cultural institute. Ooh. I know. A favorite one. A favorite's hard, I know. So, I mean, aside from our own collections here <laughs> at the Disaster Research Center, because uh, just to highlight, if anyone is interested in disasters, we have um, hundreds of thousands of items, books, archival holdings, um, and, and we specialize in rare and otherwise hard to find materials. So we have a lot of very cool stuff in our own collections, mm -hmm. which I oversee. Um, and I am mentioning them both because uh, I genuinely mean that. And also to buy Cornelia some time to think, because you gave us a very difficult question. Um, <laughs> I would actually say that if I had a favorite, um, I mean, I really love... Uh, so many places, but I mean, maybe my favorite would actually be the Philadelphia Museum of Art, which is uh, what I was originally tweeting about, mm -hmm. uh, which is part of why I was so um, kind of, uh, we'll say, inspired to to talk about it on social media. Um, I think that the PMA is a really great institution. They have mm -hmm. a lot of cool stuff happening in this amazing, beautiful, historic building. And if anybody is ever in Philadelphia, I recommend that you visit uh, as long as there's not a strike happening because don't don't cross the picket line. But otherwise, <laughs> um, it's a great place to visit. And Cornelia, is, do you have a an answer? Yes, thank you uh, for buying me time. Necessary. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, in fact, it, <clears throat> difficult. But I would say that probably, <clears throat> sorry, um, maybe one of my favorite museums is um, the Technical Museum in Vienna. Mm. So I have, a, I'm a little biased because I'm Austrian. So mm -hmm. I, of course, I ran through all the Austrian uh, museums first. But the Technical Museum in Vienna is really, um, I, I visited it last summer. And um, for the first time since I was like in elementary school, um, and it was just uh it blew my mind. We spent like four hours and uh, saw only half of it. And there was so much. It was like they really, the way they curated um, their different uh, sectors, um, it was just a lot of fun and the time flew by. And uh, I loved seeing things like um, they have a, a section on um, everyday objects. And Ooh. that was to die for. That was so, so fun. Like, it, you know, like kitchen, um, electrical, like appliances and um, everything from a broom to the, um, what's it called? The robo vacuum, like the evolution the of Roomba? the vacuum cleaner and things like that. Yes. It was really fun. A lot of fun for all ages. So that's a great museum. 
the historian um, in my heart is so happy to hear that you're talking about <laughs> like everyday objects. Um, and Valerie, the programmer in my heart is so happy to hear about the things going on at museum. Um, mm-hmm. thank you so much for sharing your favorites. Uh, just to, just to keep you like, I can share what I often use for my favorite when yes. that question is posed. I was going to ask you yes. back. Yes. Um, I often say the Guggenheim because mm-hmm. I really appreciate the layout. Um, I just think it's lovely to be able to walk into a space. You take an elevator to the top floor and it's a slowly gentle sloping walk through those, um, the spiral as you make your way through the museum down, um, back to the ground floor. And I just think what a great way to see everything while you're at a museum. Um, so that's the one I most often use, but, uh, I've also really been impressed with the Sinstrup's museum here in BC. Um, I love their online presence. I love, uh, the programming that they do. And I think they're very, very funny. Um, and I always appreciate humor in our sector. You know, we could talk about this the whole hour, so I'm only going to do one more, but just to mention Mm. you, you talked about the Guggenheim and the slope down. I, um, all of my dissertation research was about the um, the task force, uh, this sort of mixed group of cultural heritage professionals who came together to document the 9-11, at, uh, September 11th mm. terror attacks. And um, one of the most thoughtfully sort of curated, I think, in terms of like the structure of how the content and the programming interacts mm-hmm. with the building um, museums, I think is the 9-11 mm-hmm. Memorial Museum in New York City. You go down sort of like you're descending into the chaos of the day mm-hmm. and you're kind of there at the bottom level. And then as you come back up, they try to sort of bring that sort of back to the regular uh, day-to-day world that we're in um, present day. And I just, when you were talking about the Guggenheim, I thought of that. So that's the last one. No, no, that's perfect. And that brings us back to the topic at hand, just disaster planning, emergency planning. Um, I'm uh, maybe this will be, this will be a follow-up email. This will be maybe something for the listserv or something for a second podcast. I'd love to know more about your disaster collections of rare, rare information, rare items. That's yeah. we'll take that. We'll put it into the parking lot. Um, cause today we're talking about emergency planning, um, and disaster planning. I often use emergency planning. Um, do you find those terms interchangeable? Do you have one that you use more often? Hmm. That's a great question. <laughs> Cornelia, do you want to answer? Uh, between emergency and disaster? Yeah. That's the question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. If I, no, interchangeably, I would not say, but mm-hmm. um, both, yes. Um, I think it, very often for me i guess it depends a little bit on the audience Mm. um in the disaster science field i talk more about disasters of course with like uh outside folk like if i talk to my family about what i'm doing i'm still trying to explain what i'm doing but um it's i probably use more the term emergency because it doesn't seem as dramatic Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh yeah so for, for me, I think the different sort of in the disaster research field, the way mm-hmm. um, things are conceptualized, it's like kind of one of the, there are a lot of different frameworks for understanding emergencies and disasters, as you can imagine, but kind of one of the most commonly thought of is that um, those fall on a spectrum. So it's like mm-hmm. emergencies are smaller scale disasters kind of affect a community rather than like a, a, a unit of whatever part of the community and then on the larger end there's like a catastrophe right which um thinking of in the united states hurricane katrina was a catastrophe Mm -hmm. right just like something that really is is large in scale and scope and um so i i think of those i think of those kind of that way Mm -hmm. i think in terms of disaster and emergency planning though in this field i think people use them pretty pretty interchangeably in my experience and so um I don't always make the distinction okay I'm going to use emergency planning because that's the one I'm most familiar but in my head know that I'm thinking emergency planning slash disaster planning but now I might also be thinking about catastrophe you said catastrophe (laughs) and I intake of breath I gasp I um Mm. I guess in one way, it's to say that I'm quite lucky that I haven't encountered a catastrophe mm-hmm. because you said catastrophe. And as Cornelia <laughs> said, I was like, oh, that's, that is like red level alert, um, scary, scary, scary. Uh, 
so uh, oh gosh um i'm gonna pull my pull myself away from the edge of catastrophe and bring myself back to emergency planning uh disaster planning so my first question what does emergency planning mean to you um i jump in here mm -hmm. um, yes. if that's okay um so to me um emergency planning um in my encounter with emergency planning actually changed um, uh, my my career path and uh, mm. a lot of things around it. I came to this whole field through personal experience while I was working at a library in Rome in Italy. And um, like so many people, um, you know, you start thinking about uh, emergency planning mm -hmm. after something has happened mm -hmm. and you find out that uh, you were not prepared. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I, you know, I started um, reading a lot of things, uh, started to, to try to to make little changes. Um, and after a while, um, I thought, yeah, I want to do more with that. And that's actually when I heard Valerie on a podcast mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, found out about the Disaster Research Center and decided to to come here so that it has a um, has a big role, plays a big role in my life, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, what I think just to to clarify for, I think, what we want to talk going forward mm -hmm. Uh, is that when when I think or when we think about emergency planning, we're thinking about um, collections. Mm -hmm. So the whole um, aspect of uh, personal safety, fire evacuation, and things like that are a different a different thing. Uh, they will always have priority, mm -hmm. of course. You know, human safety uh, is always more important, but um, I'm thinking mostly about um, preparedness and planning for collections. So since I come from the library field, I'm thinking mostly about library collections, but a lot of the things um, are, you can apply them like interchangeably mm -hmm. between museums and libraries, not everything, but a lot of things. Mm -hmm. I'm... Yeah, I think, and the life safety stuff, I think, you know, it's all part, it should all be part of the same sort of integrated mm -hmm. plan, but there are just to expand on what Cornelia is saying. There's a lot more resources out there about how to get people out of a building in a fire than there are sort of nuanced and useful, I think, um, uh, tools for not just a template for an emergency plan for mm -hmm. a cultural heritage institution, but for the planning aspect of it, which I think is what Cornelia and I are both mostly interested in is, um, you know, a lot of the disaster research uh, kind of points to the plan in the binder is, mm -hmm. is not the plan. The planning is the plan mm -hmm. where everybody gets together and talks about what they'll do and make sure they're on the same page and understand whose role is what that kind of piece of it is actually the more important thing than whatever the end product is. Um, so I think we, uh, I think we both agree that like the life safety stuff is important. I don't mm -hmm. want anybody to think that we're like, who cares about people? But, <laughs> but I think that, um, you know, in, in our case, I think we're looking at that more kind of holistic piece that's missing around collections planning and, and the people on the collection side, Cornelia and I, in, in preparing for this podcast, we're also talking about almost all of the life safety stuff mm -hmm. that we have seen um, between us and Cornelia can tell me if this is, is not represent her experience, but is, is, geared mostly towards getting visitors out of a building mm -hmm. right and not so much about like who goes to the staff break room where the fire alarm is not that loud and make sure that everybody's out of there it's mm -hmm. all about like here's the evacuation route and we should direct visitors to go this way to this door um so i think like in the larger sort of theme of of kind of planning i think also uh museum and other types of cultural institution staff are are left out of that pretty often. No, absolutely. I think that's, um, well, first of all, I just want to say, I'm so happy that 
Camelia, you heard Valerie on a podcast and that changed the um, track of your life because we are here now (laughs) on a podcast for any listeners. um, I hope that this inspires a massive change in your life, um, in your career path or path or personal life. Um, I I think it's, I think it's very interesting that you're talking about uh, the plan. Planning is the plan. Cause for me, coming from a a programming um, more people side background, I see the people at the table who are making the plan and that's the the people role in that planning. Um, whereas you're talking about collections conservation and, you know, books can't walk up, walk off the shelf and follow the exit signs to leave the building. Um, there needs to be a plan to address how, how would we, and how do you do a fire drill with collections materials? How do you prepare for, um, for a fire in a historical house that you're trying to preserve the historical house, not get the visitors out, not get your staff out. Um, And when you, for me, when you started talking, I was thinking, you know, my entire life um, through elementary school, we did stop, drop and roll fire drills. Mm -hmm. We did fire drills to exit the school. We did earthquake drills here on the West coast. Um, So uh, since you're a child, you've been prepared on how to get a person body out of an emergency place. And then that bleeds into hopefully, um, and sometimes more formally bleeds into training for as an adult in a workplace um, or out, you know, if you're at a movie theater or a mall and there's a a fire alarm that goes off, um, you have the plan already in your head, it's ingrained, you get up, you leave through emergency exits, you move away from the building. Um, Most likely you'll clump together in human instinct or also just that's what you practice in school that you line up together on the field. that's, that's something you practice since childhood, but to talk about your workplace and, and, um, for us with the, the cultural sector to talk about collections and conservation, um, if you're an amusing, emerging museum professional, this may not have even been something that's on your radar. If you've been in a, a, a museum or, um, cultural organization for 30 years, but you haven't had to have a fire or you haven't encountered an, an emergency, um, you haven't put that plan in place. You know, it's just, it's theoretical is my long way of saying, um, it's a, it's uh, theoretical. So that I, I, um, I find this topic clearly very interesting as I'm rambling on, and I'm sure you do because this is your, the career you have chosen and your, your passions. Um, but I just find it very interesting to think about that as someone who did not, um, who comes from a programming background, which is much more people centered, who hasn't spent my whole career thinking about the things. Yeah. And I think just to add on to that, Mm. I think, um, the, a lot of the, the research about, you know, the planning is the plan, uh, a big chunk of it is about how, what, what happens to plans or how they're implemented, the actual, like the binder plan. Mm -hmm. And there's this, um, we'll, we'll post some literature on our website that people can, if, if somebody wants to read the actual academic you know, book or article they can, but one of my favorite stories is from, um, uh, is, is about what they call fantasy documents in this, Mm. uh, sort of subsector of the field that, that emergency plans are, uh, often fantasy documents, quote unquote, because they're like people's best idea of how things Mm -hmm. will go. And so if you have written, like, here's what everybody will do following by the book, you know, blah, 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 then you are not having a realistic, I think, conception of, um, how things go in an actual emergency. Mm-hmm. And um, that is why that is in fact, like one of the definitions of a disaster, something that overwhelms the resources of a community. And so you, you know, there's some parts of that that you just can't exactly mm-hmm. plan for. And the, the most, I mean, my favorite example from that body of literature is about after the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, um, which uh, I'm sure uh, word of reached um Canada. It did. Yes. Um, We're familiar with so, that. Yeah. So um, BP had just taken their, and they just lifted their entire Gulf of Mexico emergency plan for oil spills straight from their plan that they had devised for the Arctic after mm. the Exxon Valdez um, uh, sort of oil spill then. And um, so the, the plan, which was thousands of pages long, had instructions, for example, about how to clean oil off of a walrus, but nothing about like the actual wildlife that lives in the Gulf of Mexico. The temperatures were all wrong, mm-hmm. right? It's, you know, it's very cold versus very warm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's kind of a good example of like, 
even if you have a great emergency plan, mm-hmm. if it is not a plan that has been developed by people who understand the context and the circumstances, um, the people who know that kind of scenario the best, then it's not going to be at all useful, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. So I want to, if lose I space. can, oh yeah, please. I was going to say, I'm going to lose space Cornelia, if you'd like to, to jump in. Yes. First of all, I can't stop the image of little books all walking out <laughs> the building in a line. In my the head. evacuation. It's like, yeah. Yes. It's like, I love it. All the books yeah. walking out. Um, anyway, um, uh, what I wanted to say, uh, what I wanted to add was mm-hmm. that um, there is, there's a ton of, of literature of like handbooks and and how to do this and how to do that and how to write your plan uh, for the um, uh, library and museum sector so it's not that there's you you that the literature is out there mm-hmm. and the question I think for me is always the interesting question of why why so why do people not do it i mean mm-hmm. we know that things happen because you can't close your eyes and say you know everybody can think of uh, a handful of uh, incidents in in cultural institutions so the literature is there uh, you know that something will happen um but what is really important is that you that people need to um like there needs needs to be institutional backing Mm-hmm. for uh, for writing a plan or for doing everything that is associated with writing a plan. Because as we said, it's not just you write the document and then you put it in a drawer and and then you're prepared. Um, it's, it has to be a living document and it has to be, but that is something that needs to be really supported on, mm-hmm. on a higher level too, not just by somebody who, like the one person who is interested in it. And... Um, I mean, kind of piggybacking off of what what Valerie said with um, like three characteristics of a plan, I think would be like, you know, it has to be simple. It has to be comprehensive. Like we Mm -hmm. have to think of all the things, even though we can never think of all the things. Mm -hmm. But it also has to be flexible because Mm -hmm. we can't anticipate everything. And there's this uh, um, expression that I really like is like, it has to be the basis for the on-spot creativity like you really have a good a good basis and then you take it from there Mm -hmm. but the basis is important because um in the moment everybody is stressed and you're under pressure and you can't like think up big plans you Mm -hmm. have to have the like the um like a skeleton of it Mm -hmm. ready to go Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we don't want anyone to take away from this that the templates and the plans out there that are available are not useful because we definitely like 100% endorse those and um, Love we're them. posting Love them. yeah yeah <laughs> posting those to our website and like please use you know any template any plan you can find is a great starting point mm-hmm. the takeaway here is just that that's not enough that can't be the only thing right so um and we can talk more about practical resources later but um the only other thing i want to add to this um question of what does emergency planning you know mean to me i think is um of the two of us we kind of have a we kind of have a two sides of the coin mm. expertise mm-hmm. um and so cornelia is the emergency planning expert of the two of us uh and my my research and practical interests are largely about um post disaster cultural heritage and the creation of new heritage and new narratives after disaster events and um I think one thing that people don't think of in their emergency planning, which again, you cannot think of everything, Mm -hmm. but it is worth considering because this is a question that has come up over and over and over again, whenever I give a talk or, um, you know, interact with people in the field is uh, what happens if there's an emergency, a disaster at your organization. And, you know, then is there something that comes after that will become part of the new cultural heritage in your community, um, uh, public memorials that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, conservators are asked by local governments to conserve after tragedy. Um, and, uh, you know, are there things in your own collections that might be um, damaged? And mm-hmm. then how do you integrate that sort of uh, 
thinking into the history of the object, right? Are you, so there's this great story from the 9-11 museum about how after Hurricane Sandy, it's not a great story, but none of our, uh, it's, spoiler alert, none of our stories are great, great as in great the territory, yeah. Interesting uh, story is that um, the 9-11 Museum was all built and, you know, getting ready to ramp up to be open. And when Hurricane Sandy hit New York City and Foundation Hall, where a lot of the large objects, uh, fire trucks and um, the last column, uh, things like that are, are housed, uh, flooded. Mm. And when the floodwaters receded, there was all the silt from the river on on the objects and the conservators had to decide, you know, do we keep this as part of the history of the object? Mm -hmm. Because, of course, those are already damaged, mm -hmm. right? They're not pristine condition for trucks that you're going to restore. Um, so do we leave the silt or do we clean the silt off and uh, clean the whole thing back to like clean mm -hmm. because there's jet fuel and there's stuff underneath from the 9-11 attacks um and and in the end they decided you know this museum the mission of it is to tell the story of 9-11 and they um through the magic of art conservation <laughs> uh used a used a solvent that took the silt off but let left the jet fuel and the ash and the other things wow. um behind wow. and they so they in the end they didn't integrate that but these are the kinds of things that mm -hmm. come up and it's good i think for um cultural heritage professionals to mm -hmm. have sort of an awareness of these kind of questions even if you're not going to write them into your plan right because mm -hmm. you can't uh mm -hmm. you can't foresee everything um so that's another that's a kind of another thinking that that i that i sort of integrate into the emergency mm -hmm. planning question and when you said um you know the the after the disaster, after the event, what happens next? Um, which brings me, I think, in a roundabout way to my, my next question. It really made me think, you know, if you have a museum, um, I encountered uh, while working at a, a museum, um, we had a massive, excuse me, a massive windstorm. Power was knocked out for three days. Um, so for those three days, it was minimal staffing. Um, at, at the organization because we weren't open to the public. So the staff who were previously scheduled to be there, who work hourly, um, had three days where they're unpaid, which they had previously planned about. Um, and that was a minimal, that was a very minor, uh, the only reason we were so delayed in opening um, was because it was such a, a widespread storm. Um, our The resources to get electricity back up and running, they were just overwhelmed so that we were gonna be on their list. It was just gonna take a while. But it really makes me think, you know, if I was in an organization that completely burnt down um, or a tornado wiped us off the map, what happens not only to those things that were stored in, and, and kept at that museum, um, but also the people, the people who previous who just hopefully still have their lives, but lost, lost their, their whole livelihood. Um, so my, my question that um, was prompted through the Twitter Fed, but now also through our conversation is where do or where does labor relations come into play in regards to emergency planning when you think of your labor force yeah so maybe now is a um a good time to talk a little bit about um for people who might be listening and mm. saying like what is this twitter that yes 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 please <laughs> i was just gonna link so, it in the description no. but let, let's talk it out here yeah i mean yeah so uh we so here in the sort of the region where i live is the philadelphia museum of art and i did some emergency planning work with the pma a, a few years back and um really got to know and love the collections and some of the people who work there and um now my sister works also at the pma mm -hmm. and she is part of the union um and uh the the pma union um so there's an article that we're putting in our resources um that is uh, from a, a pma employee that really outlines sort of all of the um concerns that employees had and mm -hmm. and the reason that they unionized and then ultimately decided to go on strike but the first time that they voted the union voted to authorize a strike um i sent a twitter thread because i um uh, thought it was um bananas to use mm -hmm. a technical term uh, yes. that that museum leadership would allow this to happen and um because of the complex and skilled and um 
you know, really uh, important labor that that museum staff do every day to to keep a world class institution like the PMA running and even smaller institutions uh, that that labor is no less complex and valuable. So I I just tweeted this thread of like, here are all the things that I think um, could go really wrong if mm -hmm. if the leadership does not settle with the union and, and allow mm -hmm. for a um, a resolution to this. And, um, you know, that was everything from the forward facing sort of visitor services nightmare that would ensue. They had, get 800,000 visitors a year at the PMA. Um, you know, the nobody to run the ticketing system is a mess. Um, art conservators, not every museum is fortunate enough to have conservators on staff. The PMA has like a really world class team of conservators who are part of the union and mm -hmm. Um, you know, that work, I kind of posted some information about how that work is so detailed and takes thousands of hours of very specific expertise that even is is like uh, specific to collections sometimes um, and all the different things that people might not know about, which but maybe your listeners are more familiar with than they want to be about like the day to day damage that can happen to collections in museums from mm -hmm. accidents and uh, visitors. Yes, God bless them, not yeah. knowing what, um, not knowing, uh, you know, this chair is actually not for sitting, even mm -hmm. though there's a sign on it, like that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, some examples of restorations that that went poorly. Art hand, they had a big, the big kind of uh, fulcrum in this lever of the strike was that the PMA had this big exhibit coming up. Um, that was um, a special exhibit of uh, the work of Henri Matisse, and they were um, running it in-house. It wasn't like a traveling exhibit. It was it was a partnership with some French museums, and you know you need art handlers to install an exhibit and um, document everything for insurance purposes. And so I just thought the whole thing was like wild, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, so I sent this first Twitter thread. And then the one that you saw was later yes. after the strike started. Um, the the PMA, um, Philadelphia, known for its, um, uh, as they say, uh, get up, get down, Philly is a union town, and known for its um, uh, strongly worded commentary, the city of brotherly love uh, sometimes um, mm -hmm. speaks um, <laughs> How, how will I say? Well, you could look at the, so the PMA Twitter account, I quote tweeted this, um, this tweet that the PMA sent out and it says, due to the volume of inappropriate posts, including profane language, we have decided to disable comments at this time. Uh, we believe it's our responsibility to maintain a civil discourse across our platform that respects and protects our staff, artists, and community collaborators. And so anytime you have to turn off comments in yep. your social media, something has gone wrong yep. <laughs> for you in a in a significant way yeah um so I quote tweeted that and I said let's talk about protecting your staff and I tweeted some things about um you know I'm teaching this in my emergency planning for cultural organizations class in the spring um but that all of the risks of not uh, having the institutional knowledge that employees have their skill set um, and and how that creates risk for an mm -hmm. organization, right? So having people who are not um, qualified to hang a very heavy piece of artwork, doing that labor, it could result in injuries. Art handling mm -hmm. is not for the faint of heart. Um, and they've sent an article about like the very serious injuries that happen to art handlers all the time. Mm -hmm. Yet another reason why they need to be paid more. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, just some other things like that. And just how from the organization's literature, which is kind of my my sort of intellectual home, I guess, um, the um, how how the having overworked, stressed people who don't have the right kind of expertise doing work is one of the big factors that leads to mistakes um yes. that leads to emergencies and disasters that are mm -hmm. human caused right and uh all the different kinds of cascading failure that can come from that uh so that is kind of the thread people can read it we linked mm -hmm. it on our website if they want to um but um it's long because i was very very <laughs> um because i was pretty irritated and yeah. so um because also you know i as i mentioned right i i 
love the PMA and mm-hmm. I, everyone that I worked with there cared very much about their jobs and for, for everyone, for the union to get to a point where they cared so much about their work, but they were still willing to go on strike knowing that there could be yeah. these consequences. Yeah. You know, once you have backed people into that kind of corner mm-hmm. um, and said like, we know you care about this work and um, they have been forced now to damage a thing that they love, right? Mm-hmm. This institution, mm-hmm. um, you know, you should probably um, uh, pay, as I said, at the end of the thread, pay them everything they ask for and thank your lucky stars that they're mm-hmm. willing to come back. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, um, and I think that all was borne out in the end, spoiler alert, they settled a contract um, and they were able to uh, go back and, 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 install the rest of the Matisse exhibit. And, um, you know, in the end, I think that worked out, but I think it was just a really, um, it was just a really frustrating situation to watch unfold Mm -hmm. from the outside as somebody who really cares about the institution. Um, so all that is to say, I think that, um, the labor piece, whether or not your organization has a union, Mm -hmm. the concerns and considerations are still the same, right? Um, Although I'm for, as as you might be able to tell, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, staff having a union, if that is useful to them, I think, um, irrespective of that, the the idea of the institutional knowledge that lives with people who have been around an organization is invaluable and mm-hmm. cannot be replaced. Um, and I think that the that sort of expertise has got to come to the table in emergency planning, but also just, I think, in the day-to-day running of an organization. Um, and you can create a lot of risk for yourself if you don't sort of understand that and and treat it really with the, the, the your workforce with the care and respect mm-hmm. that they deserve. Mm-hmm. Cornelia, anything to add? I, I have thoughts, but I want to leave space for you first. Uh, yeah, just, um, just one thing to add mm. uh, or expand on what Valerie said. Um, of course, the labor movements are are largely, or at least at, on the surface, very often about uh, about pay. Mm-hmm. We're talking about pay or benefits and and things like that. Um, but it is not so much. Um, it's 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 two things. It's the it's the pay, but it's also respect and recognition. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think one of the, like trying to to characterize um workers who strike um as as people who only think about the money when that's really the last mm-hmm. thing i mean it's not the last thing to do because you you can't you know you you need your pay you need a a, a living wage and things like that but um it's really this um this delicate balance between okay i care about the money but really deep down behind behind the question about how much do I get paid mm-hmm. is the question what is the val what is my value for my employer like what um do they respect my mm-hmm. my um my expertise and my my passion that I bring to the job um and that's just as important um yeah that and I think, yeah, and we included on our resources page this um, graphic created by an artist, Sam Wallman. Um, it's, a, you know, you don't have to take your job to one a union, right? Mm-hmm. And um, it's just a really, I think, a really nice illustration of the kinds of factors that go into what Cornelia mm-hmm. is talking about. Um, so people can look at that if if that's of interest. But I think, um, but I think it's just a broader, it's, it's just a broader question, mm-hmm. really. And I, I love that you said institutional knowledge. Um, I've encountered at one of my museums, I was there for minor flooding, power outages, electrical fire, gas leak, and a bear. Um, because mm-hmm. it was a 10 acre outdoor site. So the bear actually isn't as unusual as it sounds, but, um, I was there for five years and I encountered these emergencies and that the, um, the institutional knowledge aspect has so much weight 
And in a sector, I, I'm I'm sure it's the same in the states as it is here um, in Canada on the West Coast. Uh, our sector is underfunded, underpaid, undersupported. Um, for us in BC, there are a small portion of um, museums and cultural organizations that are part of union, um, but a fair amount that aren't. Um, so they are, you know, non-union workers. Um, the BCMA has hosted a webinar with BC Living Wage, and we've hosted a webinar with BCGU, which is the local union, because that that Institutional knowledge, I think, can be dismissed quite easily um, through, you know, we don't have money to pay any higher, and we're so sorry to see you go, we wish you well, but you lose that person and you lose that institutional knowledge who was there for the last fire, who was there for the earthquake, or who was there for the gas leak, um, and you might have that imperfect plan that they wrote because they were there for that, um, that event, um, but you're losing that person who actually experienced it. Um, you're losing that person who remembers that the sump pump services the bathrooms as well as pumping up water from the collections. And uh, if the power goes out, you gotta check the sump pump because you can't use the bathroom and you, you gotta keep the collections. That, that institutional knowledge um, we see often in, in the lower mainland here, um, people moving, from place to place, uh, organization to organization, often two years, maybe it's a one-year maternity leave coverage, excuse me, maybe you're staying there for uh, five years, um, but you're moving, you're not going to stay there forever. Um, and with that, you're taking that knowledge and your hope is that you'll get a higher pay at a different organization and that's why you're moving. Um, or you're gonna get a better work-life balance and that's why you're moving, or you're gonna get a um, more respect, as Cornelia was saying, or respect in your role and your knowledge and your experience by moving. Um, but with that, you take that information that you have, that experience you have, and that puts both the site and collection at risk because you are leaving it behind. Um, and that was something that really sparked when I saw the Twitter account, which prompted me to reach out to you. Um, uh, sorry, the Twitter thread, which prompted me to reach out to you and which prompted this, this podcast is I loved the, the idea. I hadn't heard it. I hadn't thought about it before. Um, that role that if you were in a union environment, if you had a living wage, if you were paid handsomely, you most likely wouldn't, and you, you were respected and you were respected in your organization, you most likely would stay there until the day you retire. And maybe you'll come back as a volunteer after retirement. Um, and with that, you would get 30, 40, maybe 50 years, um, knowledge given and shared and grown at that organization fingers yeah. crossed the disaster doesn't wipe you off the map um <laughs> just, just i so it seems like such a to me it was so novel but it doesn't seem like it should be a novel idea yeah and i think um you know cornelia and i i just wanted to say here that cornelia and i when we were preparing for this podcast we talked about how like for anyone who might be listening to this, who is in a leadership role in an institution and has to manage a budget and it says, you know, I want so much to pay people more and mm -hmm. we just don't have the, the dollars. Like mm -hmm. we have a lot of, we, I, I have a lot of, um, like, uh, compassion for that position mm -hmm. that that person finds themselves in. Right. I think the talking point for, donors, uh, community leaders, whoever you're trying to convince that you need to be able to pay your team more and not just pay them more, but, but provide what they need to do their jobs. Well, um, it, it is, is that, you know, the cost of not doing that yes. can be astronomically high. Mm -hmm. Right. And it does not even take a disaster. I think there's a lot of, uh, the research in like the HR field about the cost of replacing an employee is usually more than a year of their salary, right? Mm -hmm. The, um, the loss of work that you have when a position is vacant, um, all of that stuff. But, but on top of that, just the, it's the piece about, you know, how much will you pay out for a lawsuit? If you have people who are not qualified, hanging a very heavy piece of artwork yeah. or, you know, in one of my favorite, um, cases again not a great case but interesting um mm -hmm. <laughs> the you know it's famously the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist which it's my life's mission to make sure everybody knows about yes. um um I think you know it that is a case a very clear case where institutional knowledge 
um, would have been very helpful. And for those who aren't familiar, Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum is, is in the Boston area and um, they uh, have a collection of artworks and we'll put the link on our website, but you can also just find information about it all over the internet. It was in 1990, um, 13 works of art were stolen uh, from this, this museum and they included like some very valuable artworks um, at that uh, have not to this day been located and returned, mm -hmm. despite the fact that the museum is offering a $10 million reward for information that leads to the recovery uh, of this artwork. Um, although there are a lot of theories and they think that the FBI art crimes unit thinks that they've largely solved it, but that's a whole nother podcast episode. And I think like whole podcasts have been made about it. So search for those. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting Story. But the way that it happened was that there were these guards on duty and um, the thieves came in uh, dressed as police officers and mm -hmm. they said like, oh, we're here to, you know, we're here to check out the alarm and, and make sure that everything's okay. And these, um, you know, security officers who were not paid very much and, you know, all of this, right, they were... Um, they were uh, just, they said, okay, because, you know, they wanted to comply with the law and, mm -hmm. and all that. But this is a, a scenario that was not like a high tech sabotage. You know, it's the kind of thing that could happen if you have people in place who don't know that the protocol is if the police come, you call mm -hmm. ex supervisor or you call to, you know, whatever the museum's protocol is to verify mm -hmm. that these are actually police officers um it's the kind of thing that could happen again right uh yes. it's it was not like some some um high-tech plan which i think is one of the most interesting things about it and so you know if you're talking to someone about the risks to your organization you can certainly highlight natural hazards that threaten your institution and you can certainly highlight all kinds of things but there are all kinds of hazards that do not relate to the weather mm -hmm. that um, institutions can face um, and and really sort of sort of risks that they could mitigate by just keeping the right people in their jobs. Yes. Um, so I think that's and I want to add four times out of five when I encountered an emergency at my organization, it was on a weekend. Yeah. It's yeah. It's never it's never a Tuesday at 2 p.m. You know, it's always, always um, on the weekend, in the evenings, holiday hours when, which like, I'm, like when you're talking about a heist, if I was going to be George Clooney, Ocean's Eleven heist, um, I would totally do like a weekend or an evening because like it, you're going to, you're more likely to have folks who aren't in um, upper level positions who have that deep institutional knowledge because they um, are paid handsomely or because they have respect in that role or because they just have more information. They've been part of building that plan. They hired the security company. Um, they, they would be most likely in office on Tuesday at 2 PM. So I, I probably not going to sneak in with a school field trip group and then steal some art under that ruse. Um, but an evening and a weekend, you're, you're going to encounter that, that gap of that, um, imperfect plan and that gap of institutional knowledge with folks who don't know, um, that the police normally come through the front do door, not the side door, or that the security company um, never calls you, you call them, or whatever that 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 foot in that doorway that cracks open this emergency or this disaster that's going to happen. Um, yeah. yeah, and and I think that that really also speaks to the sort of the the larger point that the planning is the plan, right, mm -hmm. and that you need to involve all of the relevant stakeholders, mm -hmm. including your weekend guy and your volunteer mm -hmm. person, you know, who only comes in once a week, right? That person may have relevant experience and expertise. And that person needs to be just as informed about mm -hmm. your emergency procedures as any other member of the staff. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah. And okay. not just the top person on the phone tree. Because right. you might not reach the top person. Make sure everyone on the phone tree knows. Because if the first person you reach, they're most likely going to be now designated as the like, just just in the way that an emergency happens, you know how someone else who can help you. So you're going to rely on them. Uh, do, yeah, make sure everyone on your phone tree knows. Cornelia, yeah. do you, do you want to jump in? Do you want to add anything? Um, no, I think actually. That That's great. So that's okay. Because I, I have another question. Um, yeah. 
in preparation for this podcast, I wrote some questions out, which I sent you. I'm going to skip one of them and I want to move on to um, what steps can museums or organizations take, organizations take, excuse me, or mistakes that they can fix. You've mentioned quite a few things here uh, in the podcast that if people are taking notes while listening, they might now have a lovely little list of things that they can do. But if you wanted to summarize it quickly for listeners, um, what can what can we do? So um, I made a uh, a short list of, or well, actually a pretty lengthy list that uh, <laughs> that we we then cut down because it's too long. Mm. <laughs> but a cup, just a couple of action items because um, I think it might be daunting to think of you know writing a plan or mm. you know just getting all these things um, ready at once. Um, but just a couple of uh, small things that one can do and also like an individual can start doing. Mm -hmm. um, I just name a, a few. Um, make a list of other cultural institutions in your area and then reach out to one of them to talk about what mutual aid could look like. Mm. We didn't really dive into that, um, but that's an important, um, a very important aspect of, of emergency planning seeing like what other institutions are in the area and how could you help each other mm -hmm. if something happens to one or everyone. Mm -hmm. um, so that would be a first step. Um, something that I didn't uh, know before I came to the US, I learned it, I learned, um, yeah, I, I encountered the idea first here is uh, a brown bag lunch. I didn't know what that was. Oh. But uh, scheduling a regular brown bag lunch with staff uh, that is outside your working area. So you have, you know, you have a chance to chat, to learn about what they are doing, about mm -hmm. their protocols, their plans. And you can just um, exchange ideas and that will help you at a later moment because then, you know, people know each other uh, who do not typically um, talk to each other. and. Mm -hmm that's something that is really really fundamental so you you know you you're not just reaching out to IT in general but you know to call John at IT who is your guy mm -hmm. and he knows what what your collection is about so that makes a difference shout out to the actual John in IT who is our actual guy <laughs> yes who we love John. John we love you <laughs> yes we do um, another item would be find a couple of people uh, in your institution who think that emergency planning is cool, just like you, yes. and uh, start uh, a team, start an emergency team, um, just getting together regularly and, uh, and talking through all the things that need to be done. But you are the team and uh, just start. Um, one thing that... I like particularly is um, doing a walkthrough and mm -hmm. identifying um, a risk with an easy fix. Um, fix the problem and then um, you have something to show when you know you negotiate about bigger um, bigger preparedness activities and like I um, an, an example of, of something like that was, um, the library where I worked, uh, there was a lot of exposure to to sunlight mm. at a, in a certain part of the building, and an easy fix to you know protect the books from the direct sunlight is uh, putting a UV film mm -hmm. on the on the windows, which is something that can be done very easily and uh, it's rather cost. Um, uh, cost it it's not very expensive mm -hmm. and you can actually if you have the um you know the um, sensors you can actually demonstrate that it makes a difference that there is less exposure to uh to the um to the uv lights and that your books will be less damaged and easy fix and you say hey we did this now let's take it to the next level mm -hmm. And um, I guess the most important thing 
that all of these things have in common is just start a conversation, do mm -hmm. something, start somewhere. Uh, you don't have to conquer the whole emergency planning mm -hmm. uh, in one in one afternoon. Just get started. I love that. Valerie, anything to add? Uh, note just that we have put this list that Cornelia just ran through um, on our website, our resources link, and um, there are other resources there um, that people can access. Uh, we'll also be hopefully reaching out on the listserv to um, start some conversations. I would love to hear everybody's disaster stories. One of Cornelia's um, action items that um, that we, I, I had to make some edits because she has too many good ideas. <laughs> uh, one that I took off was to familiarize yourself with a disaster that happened at another institution mm -hmm. to help you think through what a similar scenario would look like at your own. And um, I would love to have some conversations with people about uh, museum disasters they know about or um, things like that on the listserv and, and feel free to anonymize those um, if you need to, or just name names, we are here for, mm -hmm. we are here for the gossip. It's mm -hmm. fine. <laughs> yeah. But, but I agree with Cornelia, just to say the most important thing to do is start the conversation in your organization, yes. you know, to, to bring the people with the relevant expertise together mm -hmm. to say, okay, what do we need to do to make sure the people are safe, mm -hmm. the collections are safe mm -hmm. and, and how can we sort of mitigate these risks? Mm -hmm. And, and um, I think that's, I love, I love the action items because they are bite-sized manageable. They are things that you can, you can start with. They're not step one unionize. Although like, that's also, that's also an option. Also, that's fine. An option. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, it, it, you, if you listener are listening, it can start with you. Um, yeah, it can right. be one move. You that's could right. also send this podcast to your manager, director, or board of directors um, if, so that they can hear that the, the first step starts with you. Uh, it steps with, uh, starts with um, thinking about this, making a plan, reaching yeah. out to the departments. Agree. Um, and managers and board directors, we have so much sympathy mm -hmm. for the tough positions you're yes. in, just to reiterate. Um, yes. But please support your, please support your people. Yes. Yes. Um, so this has been a lot of me asking you questions. Do you want to turn the tables? Do you have questions for me? Hmm. Well, I always want to know uh, what people's uh, favorite or most interesting uh, museum disasters are and or uh, can you tell us about the bear? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I had the pleasure of encountering both a bear and a bobcat, also raccoons and coyotes, although raccoons and coyotes are quite, um, quite common uh, here. Um, I learned recently as I, I moved um, cities that there's, they don't have coyotes here in my new city, which mm. I found very surprising. I just thought they were like similar to crows, seagulls, raccoons, and skunks. <laughs> just everywhere. Um, the, the museum I worked at was a 10 acre site. Um, it's right next to a wonderful, um, green space park and, um, very lucky despite being in the center of a city that that green space was home to lots of, um, wildlife and nature, including some black bears. Um, and we, the 10 acre site is a heritage site, um, with a, a historical school and a carousel and a tram building and a general store and a blacksmith, um, and a salmon bearing stream that runs through it, um, uh. as well as, yes, as well as, some, <laughs> as well as some lovely, what was a hint? Yeah. <laughs> yes. As well as just, it, it's just part of, um, you know, it's right next to this, uh, park. It, it sort of connects, there's, um, two lakes it sort of connects these, these park areas. Um, and, just a lovely day. Bear just climbed on over. I I want to think it came through the culvert as opposed to over a fence, um, or maybe just nudged a gate open um, because the stream came from the lake. So I feel like maybe he just walked that way. I think climbing over a fence seems quite acrobatic for, <laughs> but very manageable for bear. But just in my, however he had, however it ended up on the site, um, it was just using us as a cut through. Um, but uh, despite being in a park and with a salmon bearing stream and with wildlife, like coyotes and raccoons, we'd never, um, written or created or made a plan for if bigger nature 
made its way or even the bobcat the bobcat just sort of hung out um underneath the the bridge over the stream and made his way um out of there when he wanted to when the more of general public arrived um so yeah we had radio systems and um someone radioed that there was a bear on site and uh then you had to make a decision about like evacuating the site stopping people from getting on site how do you get people from their spaces away from the bear safely without encountering the bear will the bear change directions and then also call in conservation um because someone someone more than me should know that there is a bear (laughs) around here um and maybe they'll have some bear advice and uh it again was a saturday so as you expected um uh, not the, not the managers and, um, department heads on, on site. So there was just a lot of like, what kind of bear knowledge do you have? Um, and how can we use our personal bear knowledge to apply to, uh, this bear incident? Um, although, and then also just like really cool to see a black bear, like here, um, at your museum. So, um, I think we just kind of stopped the public from entering in through the gates and, move staff away as quickly and safely as possible. But really by the time anything had been implemented, the bear was merely on its way. Um, and then then that was just the day the bear showed up. I think the bear is actually, um, I'm no longer at that organization now. I work for the BCMA, um, the, as everyone knows, cause this is the BCMA podcast. Um, I think that there has actually been multiple bear incidences since. I think the bear has shown up um, oh. Uh, again, um, I think most recently during the pandemic, just as they, the site wasn't open to the public, so it was quite quiet and there was more wildlife, I think, although I'm not hundred percent sure, um, but I believe that there's, has been more than one bear experience. Wow. Well, now they have been able to hopefully learn from your experience. Um, I do <laughs> want to say every once in a while you hear a phrase that like, you're like, I have never said that in my whole life. And mm. on the East coast of the United States of America, we do, do nobody ever says a salmon bearing stream. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a thing that was like a very, I was like, oh, that's a new, that's a new thing to, um, so maybe I'll start trying to say it. Yeah. Um, anyway, Just and then drop the, it casually just drop it into conversations um and then and then just to um more practically Mm. we would love to hear from you and maybe people listening to this podcast if there are a lot of our resources that we're posting in terms of templates Mm -hmm. and things like that are our um united states uh originated Mm -hmm. right um by groups in the u.s and we would love to hear about any canadian emergency planning templates or resources that we could add to our list so i don't know i want to put you on the spot if you have some now we'd love to hear them but if not people can just share later so i uh, at the same organization i was introduced to emergency planning because of the conservator um mm. her name is liz chirinsky she's part of an organization called bc hearn and bc mm. hearn is a heritage emergency response network um she's also the first conservator i worked with so that was in itself thrilling but she's the first one who i encountered who talked about emergency preparedness um restoration collections. Um, and now the BCMA works very closely with BC Hearn. We've hosted uh, workshops, webinars. They joined us for our conference that just happened in November. They've got resources, templates, wonderful PowerPoints um, on their website. Um, and that they they are the ones, that, that's why I use emergency response, emergency planning, because that's the, the terms that I hear most often from them as opposed to disaster uh, plannings. Although I do think I will incorporate disaster and catastrophe into my vocabulary more often now. Just to, to scare people with yes. catastrophes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and then and I, I want to pitch oh, yeah. crisis, please. Ooh. Oh, that crisis so, yes. too. That's an important so the European approach, that's right, to this field, the European branch of our field, it uses the term crisis, which that's Cornelius sort of uh, origin area. So I crisis is another option. Yeah. I love that very much. Okay. I'm going to tuck that into my little vocabulary pocket. It's kind um, of an all, all-purpose term. You can yes. use it to, to mean any size of event. I do feel like out of uh, those four words, I use crisis most frequently in my personal life um, for things that probably by definition aren't <laughs> crises, but um, I feel like that's one that I whip out more often than the other three, but I'd love to apply to an, an actual crisis, not 
you know, running out of coffee in the morning um, <laughs> and having to drink tea instead. Uh, the other organization that I wanted to share, which I'm not sure if you're familiar about in the States, is that um, we have a national organization called uh, CCI. It's uh, Canadian Conservation Institute. Um, and they, again, with uh, putting object forward emergency response planning, um, they hosted a wonderful 12 session or 10 session workshop with us throughout the summer on emergency uh, planning and emergency response, um, which is where I learned about some disasters that happened uh, nationally at museums as opposed to just here in my, my little local neighborhood. Um, and it was very timely. Um, BC has encountered uh, record setting um, weather events. Uh, we had flooding, we had fires um, that destroyed museums. Um, we had uh, the coldest winter I've experienced. We've had um, more snowfall than ever. We've had heat domes, um, which has resulted in, loss, resulted in loss of life in our communities. Um, so really, the, uh, uh, BC has been going through disaster, crises, emergency, um, catastrophe. I don't know if, I feel like catastrophe is maybe not. Well, yeah. Okay. I'm going to say all four, four of them. BC has been going through it. Canada has been going through it. Um, and CCI, we, uh, it was wonderful to have them join us and take us through that workshop. I think it was very beneficial for those who attended. Um, so those are the two that I wanted to share with you. That's great. Thank you so much. We'll add them to our website because people will, other, other people will, um, I hope so. access that and, and Cornelia can put them on her list for when she's working with organizations and, um, yes. share those so. resources as well. I hope sure. so. And yeah. if people, this is my wrap up here, um, unless there was something you wanted to add before we, we wrap ourselves up. No. Okay. Yeah. They, they shook their head. No. Um, <laughs> uh, if listeners wanted to find out more, I'm, we're going to link those, uh, resources that you've shared in the uh, description of the podcast. Um, and as Valerie said, we'll be posting this on the listserv and hoping that po folks, um, listening to the podcast want to engage in the listserv there or folks who haven't listened to the podcast, but see the wonderful posts and resources would like to follow those prompts and engage there. Um, but if listeners wanted to find out more, or if they wanted to get a hold of you or contact you to further these conversations, where could they go? So, um, listeners can go, you'll post the link to mm -hmm. the resources that's on our, um, sort of broader website, which is drc.udel.edu. Um, Cornelia and I are both on Twitter. Um, I am at Valerie G. Marlowe. Cornelia, you are? At Cornelia Posh. And um, we also uh, have for the collection an email address that reaches both of us, which is elq-resource at udel.edu. So people can send us a note anytime they want. Wonderful. Thank you. I'll link those. Um, I'll link your Twitter accounts in the description as well. So folks can just click forward um, and see the wonderful things that you're talking about. Um, I want to thank you so much for taking the time today to chat with me and taking the time um, in preparation for this podcast. Uh, this is a subject that I'm very, very passionate about, um, as well as I can tell that you are. And it was wonderful to be able to share this with our wider community. Um, I just want to express my deepest appreciation for uh, pulling all these resources together. It's a um, wonderful thing to be able to share post podcast. So thank you so, so much. Um, and it is really something deeply important in our sector, not just um, locally, but internationally, because those disasters, those crises, those catast catastrophes and those emergencies um, can have long lasting, devastating impacts um, on our sector. So preparing is something that we can do and something we should do and something that we can think about, not just with your imperfect plan, but also with the people behind that plan and how that institutional knowledge um, is worth its weight in any budget increase you can uh, master. Um, any any final, final thoughts, any final words? No, thank you so much for having us. This has been um, a real pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much, Lorinda. Thank you very much.